From Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, the Russian war machine pushes further and further into Ukraine. The death toll on both sides continues to rise. But what's the word on the Russian street? Meanwhile, after a violent 20-year U.S. occupation in Afghanistan, the Biden administration puts a stranglehold on the people of Afghanistan and drone warfare being celebrated in Ukraine. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein, and we are glad to have you along. We broadcast every weekday live from the San Francisco Bay Area over KPFA Pacifica Radio and come to you live through KPFK in the Los Angeles and Southern California area. We are happy to have you along with us today, and we are really glad to to welcome back to these airwaves our good friend, Kathy Kelly, uh, most recently identified with the group Band Killer Drones. Um, Kathy has been a longtime anti-war activist, a resistor who puts her body on the line uh, to stand in the face of the this war and that war and the next war to come. And Kathy, uh, war seems to be the word for as long as uh, the eye can see. Um, I want to get your take now. Uh, I'm concerned and troubled and not even sure how to kick this around, but the drone and drone warfare is being celebrated in the skies over Ukraine as an equalizer for the people fighting the Russian invasion. What's your take on drones and that sort of contextualization of the use of drones? Well, I believe that uh, Ammon Hennessy was very hopeful when he said, you can't be a vegetarian between meals and you can't be a pacifist between wars. And it's my belief that um, the drone warfare makes it so much more easy and tempting to wage war, and it concurrently lessens the readiness to go to the negotiating table. And I don't think that uh, it's ever cause to celebrate when we have nuclear armed powers, knowing that they can outfit drones. And you know, we're so close to having completely autonomous drones; they can outfit them to carry tactical nuclear weapons. I hear this phrase often. Uh, I, I'm forced to monitor commercial media to see what's being said through the mainstream. And I've often heard um, people talk in the most positive terms about these weapons, these drones. But these drones, as we've seen them, and as the United States has employed them, there, it's deadly, and I guess you would call it uh, a sort of a, a continuum of uh, serious human rights violations and war crimes, the way they've been employed. Do you want to talk about that? 
sort of why you're such a strong resistor? Well, for instance, in Afghanistan, where people were living under skies with drones patrolling people constantly, there were many, many instances of civilians being killed. One that stays in my mind very much uh, was an atrocity, and you know it ought to be labeled as such in the same way that we look at uh, Putin's atrocities. In this case, it was the United States that was the aggressor. Farmers, actually migrant laborers with their children trying to survive, were out in a field in Nangarhar province in Afghanistan. And they had labored long and hard to collect pine nuts. This was a, a landowner's for, a forest with pine nut trees. And the landowner had notified the United States and NATO and the United Nations and the local, uh, you know, municipal authority. Yes, it's it's my field, and I will have workers, and they will set up camp, and you will see campfires, and they'll be taking their evening meal. But these are my workers, and that didn't deter the United States from using a drone to fire missiles into those migrant laborers, including children, and they killed 32 people that day. Um, in the ending to United States troop presence in Afghanistan, on August 29th, uh, a drone, a weaponized drone uh, with surveillance cameras had followed a person that they wrongfully believed was a terrorist and deserving to die, uh, Zamari Ahmadi was actually working for a United States, California-based corporation. And uh, as he was pulling into his home, the courtyard of his family home, with a car that they were sure in terms of the drone operators was actually being driven by a terrorist, and they had kind of a confirmation bias of this conclusion going on all day long as they followed him, and a, a drone... Uh, carrying a Hellfire missile was uh, activated to fire the missile right into Zamari Ahmadi's car, and it instantly killed him and nine other people who were members of his family, including three toddlers. So these kinds of atrocities, they don't stay in the American mindset because they're not given very much coverage and and Dennis you're an exception because you did pay attention to the civilian casualties in Iraq in Gaza in Afghanistan and those numbers I mean as Andrew Basevich puts it they they make what uh, the casualties and deaths are in Ukraine, almost minuscule. Now, every life is valuable. We have to remember that. But every war should be covered with the same intensity and empathy that the war we're watching unfold in Ukraine now is being covered with in the mainstream media. Tell us, um, remind us who Daniel Hale is and why he's sitting in a maximum security prison cell without the ability to share 
the incredible depth of crucial knowledge he has about the dangers of drone warfare. Well, he surely has been silenced, although people still can stand with Daniel Hale through correspondence and through education. But Daniel Hale is somebody who gave the context that was so needed. Um, Maybe I could say that after that August 29th drone attack that killed the uh, 10 members of the Ahmadi family, uh, General Miley, the, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, commander had said, well, that was a righteous attack initially. And then because there were so so many international news people there, they began to realize, oh, well, you know, actually, we just killed a family, including three toddlers. And so there was an investigation ordered. And uh, Air Force General Sami Saeed was in charge of that one. And he said, well, there was no wrongdoing done by the United States. No one can be accused or held accountable because you you have to understand the context and the context was that the uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport had been struck by a suicide bomber and President Biden had said we will never forgive you we will hunt you down we will find you they were kind of frantic to find who this uh, suicide bomber was linked up with were there any other uh, Islamic State in the Khorasan province fighters, and they must find them and kill them. But the wider context is that this kind of drone attack murdering civilians was unusual only in that there were international reporters to cover it. Otherwise, that kind of thing was routine. These sorts of attacks killing civilians were so routine and Daniel Hale disclosed to Jeremy Scahill, a reporter uh, working for The Intercept, a government, a U.S. government document, which showed that 95% of the time, the people targeted by the drones were civilians. They weren't the people that were supposed to be the high-value targets that were supposed to be terrorists. And so Daniel Hale felt he had to tell that to somebody who would get that out into as well as far into the mainstream awareness as possible. And so he he took the document and he shared it with Jeremy Scahill. And, And when he was being sentenced to four years in prison, he told the judge, yeah, I did steal a piece of paper. I did so because I could no longer steal what was not mine to take the lives of innocent people. And, and the, the lists of the lives of innocent, completely innocent people, I think must in a sense be begun, uh, initiated with the lists of the names of the children. Because, you know, those children in Yemen, for instance, weren't even born uh, when the war started. And for eight years of their lives, they've been living under hideous war, and it's a United States ally, a United States-supported ally, using plenty of drone attacks and other aerial attacks and killing civilians and pushing them to the brink of starvation. But, you know, the United States policy has been one of uh, making sure 
that Putin is known all across the United States 24-7 as somebody who perpetrates atrocities. But then it looks like President Biden might join Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, who's actually going to go and pay a visit to Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia that has been bludgeoning so many innocent civilians, destroying the infrastructure and bringing that country to the brink of famine. And so Biden, because he now realizes, well, I need to get some fossil fuels into this country. And and I've been covering for Mohammed bin Salman quite a bit this year. I've made sure that even though it was a campaign promise that we would put an end to his uh, offensive strikes against Yemen, uh, now President Biden is saying, well, um, actually, uh, I hope you'll give us some fossil fuels and we'll reward you and we'll overlook the fact that you're doing something that is identical to and far worse in terms of the number of years, eight years of war making that's being carried on in Yemen. So the people in Afghanistan um, have every reason to understand this with great sorrow because now their assets are frozen and they're being punished brutally, even though, of course, they can't control the Taliban and the women and children even less so in Afghanistan. So I think we need to um, push very, very hard for honesty and be willing to recognize that the United States has also committed atrocities. And in a time when so many countries have nuclear arsenals that they refuse to dismantle, the idea of using drone warfare is incredibly dangerous. There are drones that are now able to carry tactical nuclear weapons, and the Chinese have a version of it, so does the United States. And the ones that are being used in Ukraine now, like the Turkish Kargu 2 drone, um, is is a weapon that they're probably going to continue to use, and I think this will prolong the war rather than defend the possibility of bringing about a ceasefire. You know, in the context of the amount of racism uh, that surrounds the way uh, a war is covered of its white people as opposed to people of color, people in the third world. I mean, this this really brings it home. But I have to I'm thinking about this comment from uh, Mr. Meet the Press, Chuck Todd on MSNBC when he ran. He was horrified as we all are at the bombing and his his storyline was I'm paraphrasing but very close it's and here in the, bombing these beautiful buildings in the middle of Europe it's just horrifying to see these beautiful buildings go down and I'm thinking about Iraq the the the, the birth of civilization in Baghdad, you know how United States the declared all the generals, all the prowess, they're going to bomb Iraq, the cradle of civilization, back into the Stone Age. The idea was to level civilization. Here it's Chuck Todd talking about beautiful buildings, and I, I'm sorry, my 
my friend who is a Chakini, uh, uh, Chicano, um, uh, uh, Yaki, who grew up on both sides of the border, uh, who understood the nature of uh, hunger and suffering, couldn't restrain themselves. Is it, they're finding food, pet food, dog food, and cat food. They're caring for the humans and and the animals and my people. There's still a genocide going on against my people here in indigenous North America. I mean, the contradictions that every broadcaster calling for isn't this a war crimes general so and so, uh, CIA so and so? You've got uh, Nicole Wallace, who is the communication director for Bush the Second, Mister Torture as a forward fighting uh, tool. She's on two hours a day, calling for war crimes. It, it is overwhelming, isn't it, Kathy? Well, I think that uh, the collective amnesia that the mainstream media seems to expect everybody ought to practice is is pretty stunning and it will never ever enable us to be horrified by war sufficiently to prevent and stop our own uh, warrior impulses and our own wars of choice and you know when you look at the profits that are being made by Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon they're stunning. It's like a hockey stick. You know, it just kind of makes that right angle um, reach upward so that lots of people profit from these wars. In General Atomics, the U.S. manufacturer of drones is certainly making a profit. But then there are so many people, women and children, who are literally suffering a tortuous death by starvation and it's directly related to these wars. So yes, of course, it's hideous to attack buildings where residents are civilians in Ukraine. It's wrongful. There's no way you can ever justify it. But we'll never, ever be able to learn about the true, expansive, horrible costs of war if we don't hold up a mirror and look and see ourselves as a warrior nation which has waged wars of choice repeatedly and uh, killed uh, thousands of civilians and then allied ourselves with uh, warrior nations like Israel, like Saudi Arabia, like the United Arab Emirates and never shown any remorse. I, I did notice number one <laughs> that that the uh, Russian oligarchs were still allowed to uh, fly their super jets into uh, Israel, and number two, it looks like the Israelis are uh, everybody's talking about how they maybe they're going to come in and support the uh, the uh, U- Ukrainians resisting the Russians. So now we're going to have. The Israelis, after they get finished bombing the hell out of Gaza again, hitting 12 and 14-story buildings, including the International Media Center, now they're going to come. What? The, you know what? They could go. They can go to Ukraine, fight for the and and if if they need a place to live, they'll just 
get rid of the ethnic cleanse the rest of the people out of Jerusalem and out of the occupied West Bank and Gaza, and then the Ukrainians can have two countries. Am I being cynical, Kathy? Uh, it is overwhelming to see, you know, war crimes for one group of people, celebration for another. I don't know. I don't know where to go with this. What's your final word? I'm sorry. I'm just beside myself, as they say. I think that we have given way too many weapons to NATO, to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and we should stop all weaponry to NATO and not kid ourselves that somehow you can end a war by exacerbating the war that's going on. The negotiating table, I hope, will be reached by people who are willing to say that war is never the answer. Um, but, I, you know, we are up against a, an education machine, in a sense, that will, I think, relentlessly try to educate U.S. people to believe that we are a pristine nation whose actions are always to be trusted. And in a kind of a cartoonized version of world policy and foreign policy, we'll be asked to believe that uh, Putin is uh, extraordinary in his cruelties. But this won't bring us closer to what Mohandas Gandhi called truth force. And we are at a point where we do so need to be truthful and to practice practice the works of mercy always and put away the works of war. Thank you. That's Kathy Kelly. She works with band killer drones now. And Kathy, how do people what's the best way to people if they want to follow your articles or the work you're doing? What's the oh, best well, way thank to you. Um, you know, uh, I think the band killer drones website is good, bandkillerdrones.org. Also, um, I've, I've been work, working quite a bit with World Beyond War, so I encourage people to go to that website. And uh, I surely appreciate Counterpunch and Common Dreams and Truthout and Antiwar.com, uh, LA Progressive. There, there are many websites which do continue to um, try to tell a, a, a wider truth than what the mainstream media is telling us right now. So I hope people will go to those websites. And we're also... Um, so grateful to hear from Dr. Zahar Wahab about the realities that he's experienced as he follows Afghanistan. He's coming right up next after we take this break. We thank you, Kathy, for being with us on Flashpoints today. Take care. We'll be back. We'll be right back.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're running a little late today, but uh, we thank you for your patience and for joining us here over the uh, Free Speech Pacifica Radio Network. We're broadcasting today from the San Francisco Bay Area live uh, from KPFA and also live over KPFK in Los Angeles for Southern California. Joining us now is Dr. Zayar Wahab. He is was born in Afghanistan, received a BA in sociology, uh, sociology from the American University of Beirut, an MA in comparative education from Teachers College, Columbia University, and an MA in anthropology and a PhD in international development education from Stanford University. A well-educated comes from the very poorest parts of Afghanistan that is economically poor uh, and um, he has been fighting for his country all through the occupation uh, and knows a lot about what's going on there. Dr. Waham, it's good to have you back with us. I, I, I just have this line uh, echoing in my brain I've heard it now from about three or four various former generals who were CIA or whatever they were. And the the phrase goes, you know, those Russians, they have the dirty bombs. You know, they have no control over where their bombs hit. And we we have the smart bombs. Our bombs are smart. And I'm thinking, oh, that means when... Those bombs land on a school in Afghanistan or Iraq or a or a hospital for a surgical strike and kill a couple of surgeons. That's what they want to do because they're smart bombs. So they they can aim them and they hit what they want to hit. They're not even accidents in terms of tragedies. But I'm thinking of that. That remember that mother of all bombs that they dropped near the hospital in Afghanistan. You must have been thinking about that when these guys start talking about their smart bombs. How smart was that one? Yes. Hi, Dennis, and thank you for having me. Uh, of Welcome. Course, uh, our our gratitude and our affection to Kathy Kelly. She's a wonderful role model uh, and an inspiration and a great ally. Uh, may she have a long, long and healthy life. Um, well, first of all, I would like to point out that I we should condemn uh, the Russian war on Ukraine. Uh, yes. The same as we condemned and condemned the American war on um, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, uh, Yemen, Iraq, Libya, um, Somalia, uh, Nicaragua, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, whether it's a military war or an economic war or a psychological war, I think war is uh, um, uh, an abomination. I think it's um, uh, a crime in a way, uh, and it's uh, horrible. You know, I dislike the the death and destruction, the suffering, uh, the pain, uh, the displacement. And in my view, I don't think there is such a thing as a good war. Um, so we should be critical of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But we must quickly ask ourselves, why would uh, Putin and Russia start the war on Ukraine? Uh, and I think we can read uh, Jack Matlock, uh, you know, uh, Vijay Parshad, uh, John Mirsheimer, even Gorbachev himself, you know, who point out how the United States, in fact, provoked Russia to um, attacking Ukraine and getting involved, uh, yeah, but that's not our main focus. So 
you know, I think uh, uh, we should consider that, that Russia was provoked. You know, other people have security and economic and other concerns, too, not just us. Um, so um, the reaction has been very interesting, you know, uh, as you point out. Um, the press, as we know now, the American press, the corporate press, treats the Russian invasion as if the United States had been attacked. I mean, sometimes I feel like the Russians are in my neighborhood in Portland, you know, or in Massachusetts or someplace else. Um, uh, these reporters, you know, who almost cry sometimes and talk in great, great detail in ad nauseum uh, about, you know, what is happening in Ukraine and uh, how the refugees and so forth, even spending minutes and minutes on people's toys, actually, or puppies or dogs. Uh, so... And it's interesting that so many Americans seem to be going to Ukraine to join the American mercenaries. Uh, and we all know the fundraising in this country in almost every city and town all over the, the country, as I said, is if the United States had been attacked. So it's very, very clear whether it's the American press where our so-called journalists sometimes almost choke when they talk about the Russian attack on um uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, but uh, I, I keep asking, you know, where was the corporate press uh, when the United States and 43 of its so-called allies attacked and invaded and stayed in Afghanistan for 20 years, you know, and really carpet bombed the country? And did we forget the night raids, um, you know, the renditions, uh, the, you know, very... Uh, random um, attacks, bombings, the so-called the mother of all bombs. Um, when the United States, the Germans attacked the uh, Doctors Without Borders uh, uh, Hospital in Kunduz, and dozens of people were killed when the United States attacked, you know, nut pickers in Jalalabad, where dozens of people were killed when the United States bombed Balabuluk uh, town in Farah, in Afghanistan, where there was a wedding taking place, um, funeral, funerals, you know, and and so forth. You know, where was the press and where was uh, the public? Um, it's very obvious, you know, that there are double standards operating, whether you're looking at the uh, numbers, uh, how many Ukrainians versus how many Afghans. We all know, um, you know, um, the figures about the, from the cost of war at Brown University that hundreds of thousands of Afghans, military combatants, civilians, insurgents, uh, professionals, contractors, press people, etc., hundreds of thousands have been killed. In this very moment as we speak, when we talk about the refugees from Ukraine, you know, walking for hours to get to the train station or sleeping in the subways or in the basements, you know, forgetting about Afghanistan at this very moment, uh, you know, the head of the UNHCR, um, Filippo Grandi, just said that, you know, four million Afghans are internally displaced, living out in the air, in fact, with very little protection, and that there are at least six million Afghan refugees, mostly in Iran and uh, Pakistan. So, you know, whether you compare the figures of refugees whether you compare the fact that how Europe 
opened itself up to the Ukrainian refugees. You know, as you know, the European Union is opened up, you know, and there are people, you know, uh, government officials, uh, civilians, uh, civil society people, uh, organizations and NGOs welcoming um, with, uh, with, you know, with, with wide arms the Ukrainian refugees, providing them with food, shelter, and so forth. Compare this with the situation of the Afghan refugees and also refugees coming from Syria, Iraq, and other places when uh, the authorities in Poland and other European countries would um, unleash uh, dogs on them, uh, you know, and uh, tear gas them and have them wait out in the open in snow on the borders, uh, you know. So so it's very, very clear, uh, you know, that uh, there are double standards uh, in every way. And um, whether it's the humanitarian crisis, uh, President Biden very quickly approved, as you know, $12 billion as immediate, quote, humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. Uh, at the same time, in fact, uh, you know, confiscating or stealing um, about $7 billion, $9 billion from the Afghan people uh, in the poorest country uh, in the world. Um, so in UK, the United Kingdom, you know, uh, promising $10 billion. Remi- I'm uh, sorry, and- Professor. Remind people what happened there. You know, this is not hyperbole between no. 7 and $9 billion. This is this is This is the President of the United States acting within his, his so-called powers uh, to take actions to essentially turn the screws to starve yeah. the already starving uh, population of your homeland in Afghanistan. He, th- this is purposely uh, affecting millions of people, this decision, right? He made an active yes, well, decision well, this, to yes. turn the screw. Yes, well, this was the, uh, you know, ten about $10 billion, which belonged to the Afghan National Bank, the Afghan, uh, the Afghanistan Bank. And it's really money that belongs to the Afghan nation. It does not belong to a regime or a government or the bank itself. This was money that was deposited in the United States to be safe, uh, you know, and 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 back the Afghan currency in Afghan trade and commercial transactions with the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, you know. Uh, President Biden just went ahead uh, right after August 16th, after August 15th, when the Taliban took over uh, the United States, declared um, an economic embargo sanctions, and not just for itself, but also through other agencies like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, you know, the Asian Development Bank, the European Union, etc. All of them followed the economic sanctions which is to say really the economic warfare on Afghanistan and froze the funds. So after August 15th, very little money uh, came into the country and essentially Afghanistan ran out of cash, whether it was uh, European, you know, dollars, uh, euros, whatever. And then later on, you know, when there was a huge cry and criticism from all over the world, inside Afghanistan and outside Afghanistan. Uh, President Biden said, well, you know, seven billion of this money, and half of it would be given to the families of the 9-11 um, 
you know, uh, victims in this country as compensation, and uh, three and a half a billion, as he put it, would be given to uh, international organizations to so they can uh, deal with it and spend it in Afghanistan. But the important thing is that these economic sanctions and uh, um, freezing the Afghan funds uh, starved. It's really literally systematic, structured, and deliberate starvation of the Afghan people. And there is very little money going in as we speak. Very little money is coming from outside in one way or another by the UN and some other aid organizations. So, but here, you know, he is a uh, no conditions attached to money given to uh, Ukraine. And, and also we know that there is fundraising among civilian population and so forth. So, so the double standards are very, very clear, you know, whether it's uh, violence, whether it's bombing, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, economic warfare or sanctions, uh, you know, whether it's the delivery of um, uh, goods and services or weapons, you know, I mean, in a way, the whole West uh, is actually rushing uh, supplies, weapons, uh, aid, cash, food, medicine, and so forth to Ukraine and also opening their borders essentially to um, the Ukrainian refugees. I mean, I hate to see refugees, whether they're Ukrainian or Afghans but or Syrian, but uh, you know, there should be at least a uniformity of treating of humanism. I mean, what happened to humanity, to compassion, to responsibility, and so forth. Wow. Well, um, Professor, w- what is the, in terms of representing the situation in Afghanistan that really is, that the United States is largely responsible for. Uh, I mean, it's always been a poor country, but the U.S. policies and, you know, they they know that the, it was the Saudis that were behind the uh, 9-11 attacks, but since they're not going to go after the Saudis, they decided they'd punish Afghanistan. But what what should people know? How can people help? Because uh, the situation is extremely severe. People are starving now, right? This is exactly. no joke. Uh, really, uh, you know, as I said, Philip Grandy, the head of the UNSCR, like the head of the World Food Organization, the Human Rights, you know, um, and uh, other organizations all have said, you know, that... Um, uh, a million children are not now starving as we speak. They're in the process of starvation, and four or five million are uh, really terribly hungry. And you know, 97 percent of the people are poor and and hungry. Uh, and that the situation is really beyond disaster. It's apocalyptic. Uh, and how this came about again? You know, the press, our lazy, um, superficial, and you know, partisan corporate press um, doesn't uh, dwell on this. It doesn't do any analysis. There's no history, no context, no uh, scrutiny. So we should all know that the Afghans, as you pointed out, had nothing to do with 9-11. There were no Afghans uh, amongst the 19. There were mostly Saudis and one or two other Egyptian, etc., that the United States had no right uh, to invade uh, Afghanistan in 2001 uh, and then stay there for 20 years 
but also invite 43 of our other so-called allies. So at one point, there were more than 150,000 U.S. allied troops in Afghanistan bombing, night waiting, you know, um, uh, droning and so forth. Uh, A poor country would had nothing to do with any of this. Uh, And there were neither the public nor the press, hardly anyone or the citizens, you know, said anything. So, and it's not the first time, as I've said, you know, the United States was intervened Mm. deliberately, um, you know, in 1973 and then 78 and then in 19, you know, in 2001 and uh, so forth. So, the United States brought this about, and there is a school of thought which say that the United States does not want actually a stable, uh, developed Afghanistan so that it can justify its presence in that part of the world. Uh, I think the United States right now is experiencing sort of uh, withdrawal trauma, if you will. Uh, it cannot um, accept the fact that the world is no longer controlled by the United States. We don't live in a unipolar world. We live in a multipolar right. world, and the United right. States really get used to it and accept it and not penalize, you know, poor peasants in Afghanistan or in Syria or anywhere else, and that it should not try to provoke either Russia, China, or, or Iran to do things that we do not like. And But this makes very clear, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the racism, uh, the Eurocentrism, the what Edward Said called the Orientalism, that is, say, the othering of the other, uh, the Islamophobia. Uh, I mean, it makes all of that clear that exists in Western Europe and in the United States. And now we watch it on television in the very different kind of treatment of, say, these two conflicts. Uh, not a conflict, but the invasions, you know, Afghanistan and then the attack on, on Ukraine. I think the United States really we need to bring pressure on Washington, you know, to uh, use other means, you know, diplomacy, negotiations, uh, dialogue, uh, reconciliation, and also to work on, you know, building sort of a new infrastructure for the security and economic systems of the world, where war would become unnecessary. I'm looking forward to that day, sir. We're speaking with Dr. Zaira Wahab. Uh, As always, sir, it's uh, enlightening to have you on the show. Uh, We hope you you. continue to keep us uh, educated and uh, uh, help us keep track of the incredible disaster that the United States created in Afghanistan uh, and the suffering that uh, is immense. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's a great failure of our time, and it's sort of a, a moral failure of, 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 quote, the civilized world. I hope we're yes, having an impact. Thank you very much, Dennis. Thank you, and have a good Thank day. Thank you. Be safe. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, when we come back, if all goes well, we're going to meet with Tessa, who fights robots. Stay with us. Rapid fading, failing to recall 
But I was missing all that time in England It sent me aimlessly And for a body help of transportation To knock on windows where My friend no longer live I had forgotten on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We have a first-time guest, Tessa Luna. She's an artist, a writer, philosopher, uh, interested in politics, and uh, I guess you could say, uh, Tessa Luna, the entire sort of human consciousness is your uh, territory for investigation. Um, We Really, I've been wanting to get you on to talk to you about a lot of different things because you're an extremely interesting person. But I, I wanted to talk to you tonight about what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. You have very close friends and associates on both sides of that border, don't you? Uh, yes. And thank you, Dennis. It is a great pleasure to be on your show and it's a great honor. Thank you for having me on. So that is true. I have friends actually on both sides of the conflict in terms of ideology and loyalties. And I have very, very close friends who are in Kiev. So I hear from every side. And I think my own approach to this conflict is perhaps unique uh, because... A lot of people, and I'm sure, you know, and I'm sure your audience can relate, they side very strongly either, you know, with Ukraine and the West by association or with Putin and Russia as if they are the saviors of our world and the civilization and they are, you know, for all things good, which I actually disagree with both of those extreme viewpoints because I think, to me personally, the most important part, the most important thing that is happening right now is actually human suffering. And it didn't start right now. People of Ukraine, in my opinion, are being thrown under the bus. And they're being thrown under the bus by the oligarchs on both sides, or maybe on multiple sides of this conflict. And it's not new in history. This is what usually happens. But this is happening right now. And for the first time in my life, it impacts the people from, you know, from my land, from, and I'm talking in the broad sense of it. Because when I was growing up, you know, I still caught the very end of the Soviet Union. And it was understood that Russians and Ukrainians are just brothers and sisters completely. It was unimaginable that there would be ever a war. war. It was just completely 
it's unbelievable that it is happening. And I remember how the animosities started building up. And that didn't start right now. And that didn't even start with Crimea. And I think that that was a dirty game of geopolitics, where the Western powers were trying to create more hostilities that people probably would not have come up with on their own. And of course, again, the rich and powerful in Russia or in America or in Western Europe or and and Ukraine as well. I mean, I think they are all extremely dirty and I don't think any of them actually cares about the people anywhere. But as, as it goes in politics, people like to give people an enemy. And at that point, if well, over 10 years ago, I think the Western powers starting created, started, started creating this enemy in Ukraine, and that enemy was Russia. So out of nowhere, all of a sudden, there's this animosity that I heard about. And that was heartbreaking back then. That was unbelievable back then. And of course, now there's an actual war. And in my observation, everybody is lying through their teeth. As far as mainstream media, that is true for the Western mainstream media. That is true for the Russian mainstream media. So essentially, just like before, Russia and America, they're two empires. And they have very, very similar ambitions, I think. America is still more powerful than Russia. So, but the ambitions are pretty much identical. And it's the people who are being thrown under the bus. And it's the people who are suffering. And to me, it is just completely surreal that my friends are terrified for their families. For example, in Kiev, they are terrified. They're terrified in a sense that there's a war. And I mean, they, they're my generation growing up. We knew that our grandparents went through a war. We admired and greatly respected the courage of our grandparents and the generation of our grandparents for going through a war. We grew up on movies about the war about the Second World War. And it was completely unimaginable that my generation would deal, would be dealing with that. And so, and they're actually dealing with that right now. They're scared. And, you know, they're thinking, okay, where to, where to run? Run to Poland, run to the United States. It's completely surreal to me. It's heartbreaking. And I think all parties are responsible. The parties who instigated that in the West the parties who staged the coup or helped with the coup a few years ago, they are responsible. Obviously, the Russian side is responsible because an invasion is an invasion, no matter, no matter how you look at it. And uh, I actually do not believe, unlike many of my friends, I do not believe that there's an actual sincere effort to denazify anything. I don't think so, because our own... Uh, World War II veterans in Russia are not treated very well. If anybody wanted to take a stance against the Nazism, they would treat the veterans well. And the veterans are treated very poorly. So that is all opposed. Hmm. And but it boils down to people suffering. And there's all this geopolitics and all this dirt and all the rich people trying to divide resources. And it's impossible to know who is collaborating with whom, or which part of it is theater. I think we just have to accept the humility. It's impossible to know. We can 
make our calculations, our theories, and maybe some theories are more correct than others. But is Putin working with the World Economic Forum? Who knows? Maybe he is, maybe he's not. And people are paying the price in either case. And speaking of the World Economic Forum, I think that that entire war and what's happening with oil and energy and the prices and the food, keeping in mind that both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of oil and of wheat, I mean, of course, it plays straight into the whole Great Reset situation where there was going to be a disruption of food systems without any war or way before war. It was kind of already clear that that's where it was going. Complete disruption of global supply, supply chains and food systems so that we end up, in the words of the World Economic Forum, eating bugs, right? But yeah. whether there's a genuine collaboration right now in... Hello? Mike? Hello? We don't know. Keep... I've lost you for a second. Keep going. I'm sorry. We lost you for about three seconds. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, speaking of disrupted supply chains, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the situation. So, for example, uh, the World Economic Forum has pages for or had pages for Putin. You could say it's just it has also a page for Zelensky. So it has pages for big politicians, for presidents. So let's say no big deal. So it's natural, right? They had a page for, and it disappeared. There's no more page for Putin. It's gone. Then there was a page for the uh, Herman Graf, who is the head of the Russian Central Bank, which is an entirely different, very interesting story. Now, Riley Wagaman, who interviewed, he, he, he wrote brilliantly about the situation with the Russian Central Bank. So this guy, Herman Graf, who is the head of the Russian Central Bank, he actually, he is a trustee at the World Economic Forum, which is a big deal. It's not just a regular person. That's a big title. So, and so are you saying was, we got, ultimately, this is a problem of big oil? I think it's possible. Be, because... Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it's interesting. To, I mean, it's, it gets confusing. We're, we're running out of time. I'm going to definitely have you back. But I'm thinking... The the oligarchs are now being allowed to land their planes in Israel, and the Israeli special forces are getting ready to fight with in Ukraine. And what happens to the Palestinians? I mean, like I know. I think well, the oligarchs always get to save themselves. I think that's pretty. There's a history for the peasants, you know, what we fight about with each other and what they write about in newspapers. And then there's actual relationships where oligarchs get along with each other quite fine, usually, regardless of everything else that is happening in the world. So that is no exception. And the people are paying the price again. And it could be about oil because with that, at the very least, it fits straight in into what I think was already planned. Whether it's just opportunistic, whether it's fully coordinated, I think it's impossible for us to know. But it surely fits in. We have just two minutes left. Could you just give us a sense here? I know you're talking to people in both countries. Just a quick sprinkling of, 
of like the stories you're hearing, what people are telling you about what the struggle is and what they're thinking on the ground? Very polarized, very polarized. Even people in Ukraine, you know, East, Eastern Ukrainians and Western Ukrainians do not necessarily think alike. Then also generationally, people who grew up in the Soviet Union, they have more loyalties to Russia. That's my observation, at least. Then the younger generation is all about, you know, what they grew up with, like the West and the Western democracy or whatever it's worth and all those things. But then... In Russia, some people, I mean, people are also polarized. Some are completely horrified with what's happening. And then some go like, you show them, which is, well, a little, uh, that extremity is weird to me, but people are nonetheless extremely, extremely polarized, just like with any ideology. And then people whose families are in Kyiv, for example, which have two friends, very close friends with families in Kyiv, I mean, they're just terrified. They're just, you know, crying and trembling every day. Because they don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. It is a terrible moment in history. Wow. All right. Well, listen. Uh, let me tell folks we've been speaking with Tessa Luna. She does, uh, it's AKA Tessa Fights Robots. She uh, makes podcasts. How do people follow your work, Tessa? Yeah, the the easiest way? way is to Google Tessa Fights Robots. And then. The Lord, Google, is going to probably, at, at least now, show my page. But on Substack, it's, it's Tessa, T-E-S-S-A dot Substack dot com. That's where my latest work is. And then from there, they can find the podcast, which is Make Language Great Again, and music and writing and everything. Well, I, I, I recommend it. You're, you're a very interesting thinking, amazing person. Glad to have you on this discussion but we there's lots more we can talk about that has a lot to do with many other things thank you for taking the time out though Tessa and being with us today on Flashpoints really appreciate it oh absolutely it's my honor and pleasure thank you Dennis alright stay safe okay bye 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 bye